So welcome everybody to part two of uh, our class on a guide to spiritual living. And I think um, this is a really unique class because, um, sorry, you guys hear me? Okay, great. So this is a unique class because we're, we're speaking about things that, you know, are very overarching. And I guess the goal is to, on the one hand, we're going to notice the, the ways, like we did last week, that modern wisdom is insisting certain things about spirituality. And we decided that we're going to compare modern, modern spirituality to what the Torah is saying, what the Jewish tradition is saying, and to see if maybe we can't find a balance between everything that's going on. And, you know, the fact that we were able so far to do a pretty good job, and, and I did give a couple of examples where I thought that Judaism does maybe skew away from the modern wisdom, and that's, I think, to the betterment of, uh, of Judaism and Am Yisrael. For the most part, I think we've found a lot of similarities, and this is just to show you that a lot of what people are kind of meditating on now is really stuff that's deep, deeply embedded within our religion. So just to give a brief recap, we went over, this is from the book called the, uh, A Path with Heart. And A Path with Heart is really beautiful because he, he explains to you how to really use your heart and not just your brain, not just your mind, in order to connect with the world, to connect with reality. You know, you're almost, almost only living half a life if you're not able to engage with your heart. And of course, by heart, I don't literally mean heart, I mean the emotional life, the, the part of life that's, that's more spiritual. You know, I'm starting to realize as I get older that if you want to really connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to God, you're not going to be able to fully do that if you're only using your brain. That's, of course, one way to do it. But uh, in addition to that, you need to engage your emotions. You need to engage your feeling. So we began last week with, with the first and foremost, most important thing for a spiritual life is forgiveness. You have to be able to forgive yourself for your flaws even I would say so much as to forgive God. If you feel like your life is not going the way you want it to, to go, or you feel like certain things you're holding on to, that's going to impede your ability to really open yourself. If you feel like you've been hurt by life, it's going to be very painful for you to open yourself. So the first thing you need to do is forgive yourself and forgive God. And we tell ourselves a story, we make a narrative for ourselves within this life, but eventually if you're able to master some of these spiritual practices, you'll be in the daily grind, you'll be in the midst of whatever story you're living, and you could just take a back seat for a split second and say, I realize right now that this is all just a story I'm telling myself, this is not an absolute thing. And therefore, because it's a story that I'm telling myself, I'm going to be able to really change my perspective on a dime if I really want to. I'm just skipping a little bit. So the first uh, quality of spiritual maturity that we mentioned, and this is the one I'm most interested in hearing your feedback, because to me, this is something that Judaism almost flies in the face of to some degree. So when I look at this, and, and what is non-idealism? It's saying the mature heart is not perfectionistic. We, we care more, uh, the, the, the spiritual uh, ideal of the mature heart is to have no ideals. It's to have compassion rather than letting the ideals of the mind rule itself. Right? And it's about letting go and opening your heart and letting God shine through. So my question is, does anybody think that Judaism could be in line with this? Do you think it has to be that Judaism is completely at odds with this and the idea of tikkun olam and faith is protest? What do you guys think? Dr. Nasser, you mind if I call on you? I'm very interested in hearing what you got, what you have to say. Yeah, no, I don't mind. I feel like I'm just, my brain hasn't really warmed up to these concepts fully yet. 
So, yes. Like, no worries. So I, yeah, ideally, you're going to have to, like, break it down a little bit better. Sure. Yes, okay. So basically, non-idealism means that instead of, you know, going against the way that the world is and trying to change the world, you just accept the way things are and love the world the way that it is. And in that way, you could achieve inner peace. That's kind of the first tenet. So my, my issue is pretty obvious, right? In Judaism, we care about tikkun olam. We care about faith as protest in the words of Rabbi Sachs. That's a modern, that's a modern philosophy. The tikkun olam movement, uh, mm -hmm. I don't think it's that old. I think historically, Judaism has been very inward-facing. Obviously, we know this very well. The Sephardics have been a little bit more, you know, willing to go out there and get involved, uh, but never to change the world. Uh, that was never the goal. It was more just uh, to live and to be harmonious, you know, maybe with their surroundings. But the concept of changing the world, to me, it sounds brand new. Uh, well, I know, I, you know, Rabbi Leviton mentioned it to me, and obviously there is uh, references you could you could bring up, but. If you just look at how Jews lived and behaved through the ages, uh, aside from when they had their own kingdom, which obviously they were interested in, you know, expanding and protecting and, and whatever, but uh, they, they weren't really interested in changing the world. So Beautiful. I think we are more idealistic, at least historically. There's a new, if you look at conservatism, you know, that's one of their big, uh, you know, selling points. <laughs> yeah. Is, you know, you know, Jews are great. We care about the world. You know, they help a lot with uh, civil rights. Uh, you know, the, you know, getting uh, you know, suffrage and uh, getting black people, you know, to vote and you know things like that. Uh, you know, NAACP was was a big, uh, big thing, but but that's that's really modern stuff. Okay, so here's my question for you. So, would you agree that Judaism is very much about action? It's mostly about action, and so, so to such a degree that belief is not necessarily the most important part of of being a Jew. The most important thing about being a Jew or being a, a person that's a ben Torah, if you will, is about doing the correct actions. But you might say that even though that's the case, that doesn't mean that you have to constantly fight against the status quo of the world. It can mean you do what you can up to a point, and when you realize that you can't do any more, you stop fighting and you accept the will of God. So as far as it being about action, yes. I mean, that's the whole purpose of our very ritualistic religion, you know. Bring me lies on this day, Shabbat's on this day, Sukkot, all the times and places. And, you know, you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. But, I mean, I think any knowledgeable person about Judaism realizes that the purpose of the rituals is, is not simply to check all your boxes and then you die and you go to heaven. Uh, I mean, it, it's supposed to ingrain a certain amount of spirituality and it's supposed to change your life and the way you look at your life and the way you look at time and the way you interact with your friends and family and so the, the rituals are the you know they're very important and the actions are very important uh and you can do nothing but the actions uh and that, that is possible but obviously that's not the point mm -hmm. yes so i agree i think i think that when it comes to action, action is definitely paramount, but it's supposed to create an inward, you know, change within you and supposed to make you a better person in that way and maybe open your heart in a sense. And I just love this quote from B'Kavod. Even though we do care about action, we do care about, you know, fixing certain things about the world. You don't have to finish it in your lifetime. It doesn't, you know, Abraham Avinu never lived to really see any of, of his promises from God 
come to fruition. But at the end of the day, what's important is that he began the process. And I think, you know, that would be in line with, with modern spirituality. You know, the idea of at the end of the day, you could meditate for five years and, and work on yourself inwardly for them that amount of time. But then you come back to society and you bring that mindset of spirituality into whatever you do. So I definitely agree with that. And then we'll just run through the other ones. Before. Say it again. We should be a priestly nation for the, for the other nations. You know, so there, there, there are references there. You know, it's possible that when you look at history, we just weren't capable of really engaging with the world in that way for, you know, we're talking millennia now. Yes. And, and maybe that's why we had to go inward so much. Maybe it's just a historical thing. Because uh, now that we have some power, like the Israelis, for example, they're very interested in all these missions to, you know, other countries to improve their standard of, uh, of living. Yeah. I think that. even you look at Yeshayahu, it says th that all the, the nations should look upon the mountain of God and they should say, wow, we want to go there. We want to learn their Torah. We want them to teach us their ways and we'll, we'll, we'll emulate them. So maybe that's not about changing. It's possible, it's possible we shouldn't take a lesson from history because we've been oppressed. Uh, for, for the most part. And that, that was not a good position for us. But once we were able to to get the yoke off our back, uh, you know, so to speak, then, then maybe, you know, that is part of our natural heritage. Beautiful. I definitely, I definitely see that. And I don't, I think that our heritage could be fluid and it could be adapting to the times. And we're going to actually get to that point. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, uh, yes, Michael, Mike. please. Yes. So, um, uh, I'm also thinking, so does for me, it feels like action has to be preceded by like a belief in about the value of the actions. Like, like the 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 actions also increase your you know belief in like that you know you're serving a higher purpose. But absolutely. Um, but I also think that if you don't think it that beforehand then like why would you do the actions in the first place i agree so that maybe maybe a belief in in maybe in a belief in a way is uh is prior to action not necessarily paramount but yeah so i think i think what you're saying is and you could t correct me if i'm wrong that when you're acting, it should be inspired. And that's what the Hachami might have meant with Kavana. It should be something that has the flame of spirituality running through it. And we spoke about that last week. You don't really have to command somebody who's so inspired and so filled with this spirituality. You don't even need to command them to go do certain things, you know, do moral actions. Because they already want to. Just by virtue of working on themselves to that degree, they want to go and give back. They want to make other people's lives better. And it's not even something that has to be, oh, you must go and be nice to your neighbor. You know, that's not even something that needs to be done. Right? So just for the sake of time, we're going to run through the next couple of them so we could get to the ones we haven't gotten to. So again, these are the 10 tenets of uh, a path with heart and of, of leading a mature spiritual life. And we're comparing this modern wisdom with Judaism. So the second one is kindness. And I think, of course, we know that Judaism is full of the idea of kindness you know, look, you look at uh, a ton, all the mitzvot and the Torah, plus, you know, the, all the Ben Adam HaVerot stuff, especially you look at Megillat Rut, I think is a really beautiful expose of that, and, and we, we're, we're coming towards Shavuot now, so the idea of loving kindness and chesed being a kind of a prerequisite to receiving the Torah, that's such an important thing. 
you know, realizing that it's the, the Ben Adam HaVerot stuff is, is really kind of the foundational stuff in terms of receiving divine um, uh, messages from God. So that's kindness, and it involves self-acceptance and loving kindness. You know, so if you are not able to accept who you are and what you are for who you are, and for the fact that you're made in Etzelem Elohim, like Sherry so beautifully mentioned last week, if you're not able to, to recognize that, you're not going to really be able to be such a kind person. Because if you don't have kindness to, towards yourself, how are you going to be able to have that towards somebody else? So I've found that a lot, of, a lot of the conflicts I've had with other people in my life and the, when people are insulting to me, it's not because they have something, a vendetta against me personally. It's very often because that's the voice that they speak to, to themselves. So if a person is constantly harsh on themselves and a person is constantly, you know, putting themselves down, it's only natural that they're going to go and, and spread that kind of rhetoric to other people. And, and that's, that's a way to have a lot of compassion for them. Yes, Michael. Me? Oh, yeah, I thought you were saying something. Oh, uh, no, I wasn't, but I, I could. Please do. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's, it's interesting because how do we know when somebody is telling us something that we really could improve on or or when they're just like projecting their, their own self-criticism? That's a great the question. There's a, definitely a uh, balance. And I think the first step is that if it's a, if it's a person that is actually uh, uh, a, a loving person to you, then you could really accept what they have to say. But the question only really arises when they're not a loving person, when they're not a compassionate person. And you need to start asking, is this, and for the most part, it's probably just something that has more to do with them than it does to do with you. But that doesn't mean yeah, don't to disregard it. One of, one of the, the ways of, of projecting. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, what you could do is you could... They're projecting by saying it has to do with them and not... That it has to do with you and not them, and then you might be projecting back saying it has to do with you and not me. It's the same exact. Yes, you're right. So, so my my advice would be to, if you have that question, bring it up with somebody who you know has compassion towards you. Bring it up in a in a relationship that's really a safer relationship than that one that 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 kind of criticized you in a harsh way, right? So, moving right along, we have the idea of patience. Awakening requires a lot of cycles, you know, and and the idea I love this of not grasping and not clinging. That's a very key idea in modern spirituality. Stop clinging to every single moment. Even, you know, we cling to the, the pleasures of life and we often push away those things that are, that are more painful. Um, and the way to really live a life, according to these modern gurus, if you will, is just to open to whatever is, is, is there in front of you. And basically to open to the, to the now. Open to the moment. Because the only way you're going to find God, who is beyond time and beyond space, is if you're living in that realm of the now. So if you're constantly worried about the next moment and the next moment, and you're never living in the now, you're never going to really be able to connect with God. And I think that's, that's so true. I actually texted Michael Tabelli and my friend Morris yesterday. I had like this epiphany that, you know, enlightenment comes with the realization that you don't owe the previous moment any attention. You, you know, we, we think that we're carrying this burden and this baggage of the previous moment constantly, and that we constantly have to worry about what just happened, what just happened, and what's going to happen. Hi, Erwin, how you doing? And hi, Morris, and hi, hi uh, Victor. Um, so you, we're, we're constantly thinking that we need to worry about what's going to happen what's, what, and what did happen. That's not the case. You could begin again in any moment. 
And that's why I highly recommend meditation for anybody because meditation really does train your mind to that kind of style. And meditation is not just supposed to be during those first 10 minutes of your day. Meditation trains you so that during the rest of your day, when you find yourself getting caught up and when you find yourself clinging or pushing away at something, you, you, in, you kind of reflexively remember, oh, I, I notice what I'm doing. It's just like when I was meditating where I was clinging to this thought of pushing away that one. Let me do the same thing now. Let me just come back to the moment and let me kind of slow things down. And when you're able to do that more and more, you strengthen a muscle and you become a really a much better person, not just for yourself to be around, but for others to be around. Who, you know, who wants to be around a person that's constantly knee-jerk reaction to everything is just uh, out of pure emotion? How much more pleasant is it, is it to be around a person who is able to slow things down, able to come back to the moment rather than getting caught up in whatever story he's telling himself at the time? And uh, I think that's the beauty of this is Hashem has infinite patience, of course, for us. He creates the world and waits for us to succeed, waits for us to connect to Him, right? The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep. The Shoresh of Lirachef, according to Rabbi Shama, the idea of hovering only appears one other time in the Torah. And that's in Parashat Ha'azinu. And that's in the idea of God's, uh, God being like a, a, a bird, right? And uh, He's hovering over His young. So it's the same idea with God in creation. God is invested in us. God cares that we connect to Him. Like Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel would say, the, the idea that God is in search of man. So it's just a matter of time before the whole world is able to really allow these spiritual ideas to seep in. And that's going to make every single one of us a much better person. And definitely on a collective level as well. The fourth one is immediacy. Uh, we mentioned this last week as well. And I love this quote from, uh, from Jack Cornfield, who's the author of the book. He says, after the ecstasy, the laundry. Who, who thinks they could interpret that for me? Just, uh, let's see, Michael Soror, what do you think that means? Sorry to call you out. Uh, hmm. I actually sure. Uh, it's a I'll tough one. Michael out. Please, Morris, yes. Um, so you have moments of ecstasy where you're so excited and where you feel like you came to a, a massive epiphany and uh, saying after that, you know, you have the work of integrating it and, uh, you know, do the daily tasks of uh, integrating the epiphany into your life. Beautiful. That's exactly it. You're back to reality. You know, you have all these people. I think Morris himself could testify to this. Morris is a guy who meditates. And, uh, you know, you and you have one of these really eye opening, unbelievable spiritual experiences. And then you come back to real life and it's like, OK, what happened is, is spirituality only what happens to me when I'm really inspired in that one moment in time in that certain period of time? Or am I able to bring spirituality into my daily life, into the laundry? It's not just about the ecstasy. And Jack Cornfield actually has an entire book called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. So I, I hope to, to listen to that eventually. So I wrote here, God is both imminent and transcendent, right? There's different ways of relating to God, especially within Judaism. If you look at Tehillah David, we mentioned last week, right? You know, everyone knows it as Ashrei Yushbe Betecha, but really it's called Tehillah David. If you look in that Mizmor, we have two different concepts of how to relate to God. On the one hand, God is imminently involved. God is caring and loving and He's, I feel Him here with me. We've all felt like that at some point in our lives, you know, at the real high moments. 
And then other times we feel like God is distant, not in a bad way, but God is transcendent. He, we're, we're so awestruck by what God is. And by, by you know, look at uh, Dr. Nasser's beautiful background of the Aurora Borealis. I really love seeing that, honestly. This is great. I, I got to change my background to that. But, you know, you, you have those moments where you look at nature and you just feel like Hashem is Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Or like in the Mizmor it says, Malchutecha, Malchut kol alamim, Vemshadecha bechodor vador. Right? You see God is beyond space and time as transcendent. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. So the question is, which is it? Is God this imminent being or is he transcendent? And how do you resolve the two? Well, I think for me the answer that I've come to is that these are both human constructs. These, these are both, because of my limited human capacity, I'm a meat brain human, as Rabbi Dweck would say. Right? I'm a meat brain human, so I'm going to look at the world and I'm going to perceive it differently at different times. God really doesn't change. So it's really just my perspective that's changing. And sometimes I see God as transcendent and sometimes I see him as imminent. So I think it's our job to, you know what, you could have that spiritual lofty experience where your head's in the clouds and you're just completely in awe of God. But then it's your job if you really, if I mean, it's not your job. If you really can, if, you, if you're able to develop yourself, this is the goal, is to create an imminent relationship with God as well. Where God is involved, you know, you see God in the relationships that you cultivate. And you see God in the face of your loved ones. And you see God in the work that you're doing. That's a much more difficult thing to do. Right? Anybody could be inspired on Yom Kippur when everyone's crying. But it takes a different kind of guy to be inspired by God just walking down the street. You know, and I think that's that's definitely a something that meditation would help with. You know, and just being more mindful of the, of the beauty that's around us at all times. You know, we, we barely look at the sky. I really, there's a great TED Talk, if you get a chance to look at it, from this guy, David Steindl Ross. I could send you the link if you want. Such a beautiful TED Talk, talking about the beauty that's around us all the time. And the gratitude we could have because of that. So if we just open ourselves to that, I think this, that, then you, you feel God's imminence right then and there. And that's a, that's a beautiful concept. Um, the fifth uh, idea that we mentioned last week, and then we'll move on to the new concepts. It's good we're doing a review like this. Is that a sense of the sacred that we develop needs to be integrated and personal. It can't just be something that's removed from us. It has to be something that is even involved in, like we were just mentioning, in the mundane of our actions. It needs to be personal for our personal story. It has to be unique for us as well. It has to be something that's relatable for us. Right? And the universal truths of spiritual life come alive only in each particular and personal circumstance. So it's not like, you know, people love to ask the question, what is the meaning of life? We hear that all the time. And the answer is, there is no the meaning of life. You know, just like there's no such thing as this kippah over here. It's, it, this kippah is only there and it's only perceived that way. And I don't want to get into too much quantum physics here. Michael Tabelli could give you a class on that tomorrow night if you want. But the idea that it's, there's a relationship between the observer and the observed. And because that's the case, the second that is, is a reality, they're kind of mutually arising. The kippah and the person who's seeing it. It's not, you know, so they, they kind of depend on each other. You know, if, it, if a tree falls in the forest and there's, and there's no one there to hear it, does it really make a sound? So we're discovering now with, with modern science, to a degree at least, on the microscopic level, that the human perspective literally changes reality. I could send you a five-minute video that really beautifully explains this. 
But on a very fundamental, you know, subatomic level, our perspective matters. And reality doesn't behave the same unless we're looking at it. It behaves one way when we're not looking at it, right? Uh, 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 if you shoot an electron through a double slit, it'll act as a wave when you're not looking at it. But when you are looking at it, it behaves like a particle. That's a wild thing. The human perspective matters. So I think... Toy Story. Yes, explain. When we look at the toys, they play it, but when we look at them, they stop. Wow, I love that. That is deep. It has to do with the effect of interaction. So when when the particle interacts with anything, not only a human observer, whether it's a piece of glass that registers the electron, then... And it'll stop spreading out. It'll it'll become localized. So there's there's debates about what exactly is going on. Like you know when you if you take a picture of it and then you look at the picture, does it travel back? And the crazy things that you could discuss about it. But I love the way that you guys are putting it. Is that like the Toy Story idea? But at the end of the day, we know that the human perspective matters on a fundamental level, and that's probably the most spiritual thing you could think of, right? The idea that all the reality around us doesn't exist in an absolute way unless I'm here to observe it. And this is not to make you, you know, arrogant, far from it, but it is to explain to you the nature of reality, right? And uh, I love this idea, how we live is our spiritual life. So it's just about bringing these lofty concepts into the daily grind. Um, and I love this idea also. We mentioned last week the very, very funny piece of Gemara. Who remembers the hilarious piece of Gemara from last week? Anybody? It's about the student who went into his rabbi's bedroom, right? So basically, a guy was a student wanted to learn the laws of being intimate with his wife. So he he went to observe the rabbi under his bed, and he and the rabbi says, "What the heck is wrong with you? What are you doing?" And the, the student says, "Zu Torah This is the Torah, and I need to learn it. So I think what that's saying is, you know, we have these concepts of what's holy and what's not holy. Who's to say that that can't be a holy act? Of course it could be. And there's halachot about that as well. So I think that's the beauty of our halachic system. The same way in modern spirituality being, you know, having the idea of imminence and the idea of mindfulness. The halacha is supposed to be that vehicle for us. Halacha is supposed to last uldov gabo. Right? That's what it is for the hachamim. But it's the same idea with God. Of course, that's the, the peshat. Is that halacha is supposed to bring the lofty concepts and the ideals into the practicality of your daily life. Mikey, what is what is Uldov? Good, oh, sorry. Uldov Gabo, you know, the, the word devek in modern Hebrew means glue. Exactly. So it, mean, it means to be glued to God. It means to stick, to cling to God. And by the way, we, we mentioned that clinging is not necessarily a good thing. Say it again, Mike. Ah, beautiful. Very good. Exactly. And it's funny that we use that story. So that's the whole point of halacha. Halacha is to compartmentalize and bring down. Yes. Say it again. Exactly. So, so the point of that is to tell me that there are certain things worth clinging to, one of them being God. And one, another one of them, the people around you. But not in a sense of, you know, clinging to it for dear life that you're not going to be able to really go with the flow. And we're going to get to that in a couple. We're going to get to number seven soon. So let's just go through number six first. The idea of questioning. 
And this is so important because you hear about these stories about people who go to meditate with a guru somewhere in the Far East and the guru makes them follow blindly. And we hear this within Judaism as well. And they could convince them to do any kind of thing, to donate all their money to the cause, to give up their wife to the guru, all these crazy things. And, you know, a lot of danger comes when you follow blindly. So I think one of the fundamental tenets of a spiritual life, according to Jack Kornfield, is questioning. Whatever it is, you need to question everything you are told. Don't accept anything on blind faith. Right? Don't follow blindly. We must each see for ourselves. You know, don't follow a teacher who says, you know what, this is too far beyond your understanding. Just believe me. That should raise a red flag immediately. If you have a, a rabbi that's telling you, everything I'm saying, you just need to accept it on the basis of authority. Either because I said it or this big rabbi said it. That's not good enough. What is good enough is for the rabbi to explain it to you. If he can't explain it to you, then he shouldn't be saying it at all. And I don't think that means that, you know, you need to understand everything all at once. Of course, there's a way of working towards things. But if, you, if somebody is going to yell at you for not believing some, uh, something, just because somebody else said it, that's pretty absurd. And that leads to a very dangerous, you know, slippery slope because then you could convince people of anything. And people could be made into, you know, martyrs and, and into extremists and fundamentalists. All right, so we each need to see for ourselves and without imitation or simply following commands, don't just do the things because everyone else is doing them. Understand why you're doing them. Of course, as a child, we have certain limitations. We can't, you know, we just are taught to do. And hopefully our, our beliefs and our understanding follows. And that's the goal. So we each have the capacity to achieve spiritual enlightenment. And uh, because we are, you know, uh, Rabbi Jose Faud would say, we're living in a horizontal society in Judaism, right? It's no longer a vertical society where you need to go to the shaman or you need to go to the rabbi to give you a connection to God. No, no, no. Every one of us has a direct line to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Every one of us is a Selim Elohim. So because of that, because we're all so special, that means we don't have to rely on other people for our spiritual life. The only person, of course, you could rely on guidance. Yes, Doc? One of the problems with the writing of the oral law is that we lose uh, the ability to question. Uh, you know, they, they weren't supposed to write down the oral law. It was forbidden for many, many years. And then obviously, you know, Rabbi Anasi and so on and so forth, you know the story. But, uh, you know, now you got Shulchan Aruch, you got, uh, you know, you got Rambam, you got Gemara. So, you, you know, it's now, it's very prescribed, uh, and you really can't question it because you're told that the sages, you know, knew better, they were holier, and therefore, you know, that's it. This is the law, and, and that's the way, you know, it should be done from now on. Yeah. And you can't, can't really overturn it, even if it doesn't make any sense to you, uh, you know, even if it's almost ridiculous, uh, that's it. We're stuck with it, and we've got to keep doing it. So that's that's one of the things that we mourn over. I'm, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because on on Tisha Be'av we're supposed to have that in mind. The fact that we no longer have a bed din, the fact that we no longer live in a fluid system, even though to some degree we do. But you know when you say Hashiva Shofetenu Kevari Shona VeYoatzenu Kebatehila, and that's a pasuk from Yirmiyahu VeHashiva Shofetach Kevari Shona, right? The idea is. That that was supposed to be the case. We're supposed to constantly have a fluid system of judges and a betin to work these things out. But we're, because of the circumstances of history, we no longer live in a fluid system. 
and we mourn over that, and we and that's why it's yagon in that beracha, right? It's it's a lot of pain that we suffer because we can't uh, kind of roll with the times to some degree. But I think one thing we can appreciate is that the Gemara and the process of of deriving the laws that we have is all about questions. You know, they have uh, the idea. Rabbi Sachs has a beautiful story. He says when he would get home from yeshiva or from school every day, his, uh, his, his mom would ask him, not did you get a good answer or did you answer the question. His mom would ask him, did you ask a good question? So that's the, the, the emphasis in Judaism. It's not finding the answers, it's asking the right questions. So I think that's something that's, that, that is really to be celebrated about our religion, despite the fact that we do have limitations to what we are allowed to fully question. I don't think that means we, we shouldn't question it. I think we, so we, we should question the halachot, we should ask the question. And it doesn't mean to stop following the halachot, but it does mean to understand, okay, what's the ideology of this? How did it evolve this way? And if it seems outdated, ask the question. Ask your rabbi. Say, why, why are we still doing it this way? And notice, okay, it's because we're living in a certain system. But it doesn't mean you don't, you don't have the right to actually ask. So that's, that's just uh, my, my, my perspective on that. Um, getting to number seven, really beautifully, the idea of flexibility. And this is, this is the quote, moving like bamboo in the wind. So to respond with understanding to the changing circumstances, right? So this is kind of what we were just talking about. The, the beauty of the Torah Shebaapeh is, is or is supposed to be the ability to, to roll with the punches and to change with the times, to remain connected in the present and let go. So that's the spiritual side in the modern day, is that whatever is happening, you should have the ability to detach from it. Whatever it is that's coming up for you, be able to detach from it. Don't get too involved in it. Don't get sucked in in a pathological way. Because if you do, that's going to lead you to a place you really don't want to be in. You know, I know personally, if, I'm, if I get so involved in uh, like studying for a test and I get so nervous about it and everything's riding on it or, if, or there's a certain business deal coming along and you know, I've been working on this business deal for four months putting in so many hours and there's a chance that it's all going to fall apart. If I'm, if I'm too invested in that, if I allow my mental health to be connected to that, that's a big problem. So, you know, don't be easily swayed by every wind. Don't be blown about by every wind. Make sure that your mental health is not dependent on any external thing. It's good to care and have motivation and ambition to some degree and want to accomplish things. But at the end of the day, your mental health should be sturdy as a rock. It should be something that's, that's not capable of being blown about by whatever circumstance comes your way. Because that's really not under your control. Right? So, and this is another idea just within that, this parasha. Is the idea of there's no one absolute truth. A lot of us are taught as very young kids, this is the absolute truth. And then I think the biggest revelation that we get as we grow older is that there's no absolute truth. Anything that we could understand and, and figure out and learn about the world has so much to do with us, with the, with the human observer and the perspective that we take. So because we're limited and because we're, we're really just physical beings, we're not absolute. We are just relative. So therefore, we should be humble enough to know that whatever truth we do discover is not absolute. It's relative. And beautifully, he says in the, in the book, all the spiritual vehicles are but rafts to cross the stream to freedom. I love this imagery. You can imagine a stream. And on the other side of the stream is freedom. It's enlightenment. It's everything you ever wanted. 
and the life and, and Torah and all these different spiritual teachings are going to offer you different rafts for getting across that river. So right, the Mikey, yes. The rapids are rough. Yeah, that's right. The rapids are definitely going to be rough. And the, the, it's exactly it. And sometimes you're going to use one raft, and that's going to get you right across. Another time, you get, that same raft is not going to get you where you need to go. So maybe different times in our lives, we're going to use different rafts to get to that enlightenment. So I don't think we should be judging any other religion. We shouldn't be going around saying we are superior to everybody else. Of course, what we do works for us. But as Rabbi Sachs would say, there's the dignity of difference. You don't have to look at the Christians and Muslims and say they're wrong. I don't want to teach my kids that. You know, I'm not gonna. I, I I wouldn't take anything they say at face value. Of course, if somebody's gonna tell me that Yeshu was a flesh and blood God figure, of course I wouldn't take that seriously. But the, maybe the ideas that they're saying could be could have truth to them. There's nothing wrong with saying that. You know, if Yeshu is preaching about love, that's beautiful, and you could accept that. And accept love. There's nothing wrong with love. Maybe some ideas you would disagree with, that's fine. But don't go around and, and put everybody else down just because you believe differently. There's a certain humility that comes to getting older and realizing, and like the Hachamim said, the Shiv'im Panim La Torah, even within Torah itself, there's 70 faces. There's, 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 there's so many different perspectives we could take on the spiritual life. And when we, when we realize that Elu Elu Debre Elim Haim, these and these are all the, the words of God. Meaning, you know, you don't have to only see God speaking through one tradition. God can speak through many different traditions. This, this happens to be our tradition. This is the one that we prefer. This is the one that we follow because it works for us. This is our raft. But don't go around judging other people. Um, number eight, also a beautiful one. The idea of embracing opposites. Holding the contradictions of life within our heart. So what does that mean? You have to develop out of, and this, this builds off what we were just saying. When you grow up, you, you think in terms of black and white. You have these, these stigmata, these categories within your mind, and, you know, psychologically. And you, you kind of have very rigid ways of uh, mental categories of things. Everything is either this or that. Um, so we should start to realize as we get older, it's not just completely dualistic. There's no such thing as perfect people. Even I was talking with somebody a couple weeks ago about uh, the fallibility of people within the Tanakh. No one in the Tanakh is perfect. And yet we love them, we adore them, we think they're great. What is the Torah trying to tell me with that? It's trying to say people are not perfect. Every human is capable of great good and great evil. I love the way, you know, Dennis Prager said, he said he knew from when he was six years old studying in yeshiva, that, okay, it's, uh, God decided to destroy the entire world because it turned out lousy. Because people weren't treating each other well. So people are not fundamentally good. And people are not fundamentally evil. People are capable of anything. People are capable of both great good and great evil. So because that's the case and we see all these imperfect characters, stop trying to seek perfection in other people. Instead, accept people for who they are and appreciate them for who they are. That's something you know, I, I hear from people. They say, this rabbi, nah, I don't really like him. He's too this or he's too that. But he does that pretty well. So why do you have to say, oh, I don't like him? You could appreciate him for what he does have to say. And don't, you know, don't uh, listen to him for the other stuff. Uh, you know, I want to be a doctor. So I would, I would see it perfectly reasonable if people ask me medical advice. But then if somebody asks me business advice, 
then you know they'll they'll come away and say, oh, this guy is a real grade A jedbe. He's a real idiot. He doesn't know what the heck he's saying because I have no idea of anything about business. My dad could testify to that. But that doesn't mean I'm black or white, smart or dumb. It just means that, okay, some things are my forte, some things are not. So, so when we develop a way of thinking, where, so somebody could appreciate my medical knowledge, okay, and then I, I'm limited in terms of my business knowledge. That's fine and that's beautiful. I think once you learn to, to in your relationships, stop expecting more of people than they're capable of. You know, I see that a lot in, in, in people's romantic relationships. They know that their spouse is gonna is has a certain way of of behaving in a certain circumstance, and every time they do that, they get dismayed and they get annoyed. So my response would be, stop being surprised every single time they let you down. Just accept the fact that they're not perfect and appreciate them for what they are capable of. And don't try to change other people. The only person you're capable of changing is yourself. And of course, don't marry somebody for the sake of changing them. Of course, you want to love the person and accept them for who they are and grow with them. That's a beautiful way of thinking about it. And I think the idea of free will is so important here. We each have our own free will to change ourselves, to better ourselves, and most importantly, to accept ourselves for who we are and love ourselves and bring compassion to ourselves. That's the prerequisite, you know, unconditional positive regard in the words of Maslow, to climb the pyramid to self-actualization. So once you're able to do that, and you're able to embrace the opposites and the fact that people have both good and evil inside of them, you're going to stop splitting. One of these very immature defense mechanisms is called splitting. Where, yes, Erwin? That's Maslow's hierarchy. Exactly. That's exactly it. So, so any, anybody ever hear of the, the, uh, the idea of splitting before? Defense mechanism? No. So splitting is exactly this. And it's seen very often in people with borderline personality disorder. Splitting is seeing the world as either all good or all evil. And it destroys these people's relationships. If you look up uh, borderline personality disorder, they can't have solid relationships because everything is about, you know, everything is all good or all evil. And that's a very scary way of viewing the world. Say, Say it again. They play both sides mentally. Very much so. They'll see a person one day as completely good and they love them and I love you. And the next day if they let them down and they cancel an appointment, very often with a psychologist... They'll say, I hate you. You're the worst person ever. How could you do this to me? So, so it's, it's very important for us. I, obviously, we, this is, that's an extreme example. But I found that in myself for many years, especially my teenage years, I had a lot of black and white thinking. And I would, I would turn it inward. I would tell myself, you're doing a terrible job. Or you failed. Or you're an amazing success. These are very unhealthy ways of thinking. How about, you know, you, you didn't do as well as you would have liked to, but you tried your best. Or, you know, you gave it your all. It's just a, a small perspective shift. If you notice yourself thinking in very extreme ways, that's something that could, that could lead to a severe depression. So if you're able to change the way you think, it's such a fundamental first step for mental health. Stop thinking of the world and other people in terms of these uh, extremes and understand that everything is just shades of gray. And when you see the world that way, you really start to see the world for what it is and you start to appreciate it for its, for its capacity. And, you know, I, I have so many people in my life, friends of mine, that I would say, you know what, the, the certain aspects of them really are not very good. You know, and, and I don't want to be too harsh here, but the, uh, certain elements of their personality are not exactly something that, that's pleasant to be around at certain points in time. 
but I still love them. And I still consider them some of my best friends. Because at the end of the day, it's not just about one quality. It's about, can I appreciate them for what they are capable of? So I might have one friend who's not capable of speaking to me on a deep emotional level. But I could talk to him about the funniest thing every single day. And, and we'll both laugh our heads off. That's a beautiful thing. Appreciate people for what they're capable of. And appreciate yourself in the same way. Number nine, the penultimate one, is the idea of relationship. And we hit on this a little bit earlier. We are in relationship to all things. And it's the idea of the capacity to honor everything, everything that we are in relationship with. So we could choose how we relate to what happens to us. Everything is sacred if we want it to be. Family, politics, our job, the money that we make, the earth, right, taking care of the environment. Every one of these things could be considered sacred. It's just a matter of the perspective that you bring to it. So, you know, a lot of people say, I feel disconnected from God. I don't feel close to God. Well, why is that? Is that completely God's fault? Is that because of the circumstance completely? Or could it be that you're not relating to a certain thing with a, with a, with a degree of respect, with a degree of sacredness, with a degree of compassion towards yourself that would allow you to open yourself up to that, that thing? Right? So if you do your, your job every day solely out of stress, if everything is just, I got to get the next thing done and the next thing done, everything has to be perfect, right on time, do you think you're going to connect to God with that, with, in, through that medium? I think certainly not. But I think if you're able to day by day work on yourself and say, you know what, let me be more mindful of what I'm doing. Let me appreciate the relationship that I have. For me, it's going to be hopefully one day, and Dr. Nasser could say the same thing, to my patient. My patient is not just a job to do, it's another human being. Let me appreciate them. Let me hear what they have to say. Let me hear what's wrong. Let me, let me uh, discuss things on an emotional level as well, not just on a superficial level. And I think it's beautiful that the Torah explains the creation of man in, in, in this dichotomous way. On the one hand, you have, It's more ob- objective. But then the second uh, story of creation is, These are the generations and the birthings of heaven and earth. It's portraying heaven and earth as our father and mother. And we are the child that's in relationship to it. And we are commanded to protect and take care of the earth. So it's the idea that if you, that's Adam 2, as you would say. That's the spiritual Adam. That's Michael Franco who wants to go and be in, in relationship with God and be not just mini creator like Adam 1, but it's the guy who wants to go and emulate God in the sense that, he, sorry, not emulate God. He wants to go and be in relationship with God and be in relationship with those that he loves. So everything is a relationship and everything could be related to. And it's a question of what am I bringing to that relationship? And if you feel like something is lacking, think about it. Take five minutes and make a list of things that you could do that you could do to to make that relationship a little bit better, to make it a little holier, to make it something that's more mindful for you, more, more with an open heart. You could do that with anything in your life, especially with people but also with the jobs that you're doing. Also with menial tasks that you think are just completely meaningless. You could see God in the tiniest speck of, of dust if you want to. And, there's, uh, and this, this might sound a little bit vulgar, but I think it's very telling. So please bear with me here and don't, don't judge me for what I'm about to say. So there was this, uh, I think it was one of these gurus, like these master eastern gurus. And somebody went up to them 
and they, I think they were Taoist or whatever. Taoism is the idea of like this. This you can't even put it into words, but it's the idea of the flow of life, kind of like the energy of life. To it's almost like their god. And somebody went up to the guru and he said, "Guru, where is the Tao? How do I f connect to the Tao?" And the guru said, "The Tao is in a dry turd." What does that mean? What is that guru trying to say? He's saying, if you only limit spirituality and God to those lofty, monumental experiences, you're never going to really find God. Like Eliyahu Hanavi, right? He's a guy that is making these light shows. He's making these fireworks for the people. But at the end of the day, they just go back to their old patterns. Because spiritual life is not just about the one-time thing, the one-hit wonder. Spiritual life is about the daily thing that you do to bring beauty and spirituality to what you're doing. So if you get to that level where you're able to see the Tao or spirituality, even in a dry turd, that means that you've reached a really supremely high level of enlightenment. And I think we should all strive to that. Every single aspect of what we do could be holy. And that's exactly what halacha is. Aren't there halachot about going to the bathroom? That's not to say that, you know, that it's the most spiritual thing we could do, but it means that it doesn't have to be devoid of spirituality. It means that it could be something that's just as, as important to us as anything else in life. So it's about bringing that, that mindset to everything that we do. And here is the fun... Yes, Mike? That, that reminds me of the Rambam when he talks about, like, what is the definition of a miracle? Is it, like, the supernatural thing? No, not necessarily. If you just look at, at nature and sort of the everyday things that in and of itself is like a miracle. I love it. That's exactly it. God is both the author of the Torah and he's the author of the world. So you don't have to see him as, as just confined to the spiritual life that you're leading. If you're able to, to go into the world and see even nature as miraculous, it will be that. It really all just depends on your mindset. And and I think as you, you play around with this idea you really see the truth of it. It wouldn't matter if God came down tomorrow and revealed himself to you. And then the next day he didn't. You would pretty much go back to the same pattern you were in every single day. It wouldn't help you very much for God to go and split the sea for you tomorrow. Because you would forget like the, the people in the Torah. Right? B'nai Israel. Just forget about it. You know, that, that's basically they go back to their old ways. So it's about the inner work that you do. It's about taking that first step. And you know, I, I heard a beautiful poem today. It's about taking the step that you don't want to take. What is the question that you're afraid of asking? What is the step you really that would make you uncomfortable? And if you ask that question that makes you uncomfortable and you step out of that comfort zone, you're going to start to realize, ah, this is maybe the path that, that I have calling towards me. It doesn't mean you have to do it all at once. Just take one step at a time. Just notice where that goal is. What is it that really you don't want to talk about? What is it that you don't want to get into? could be with somebody else, but especially within yourself. And now, uh, if anybody has any questions, we'll, we'll take them. But before we, uh, I mean, uh, we're not done yet because we have one more uh, important tenet left. So any, any questions so far? Okay, great. The final idea is the idea of ordinariness. It's the post-enlightenment practice. And we touched upon this with a lot of different uh, of these tenets. After the special spiritual state and its side effects have faded away, is the ordinariness, like we said, after the ecstasy, the laundry. So it's the simple presence in this moment, allowing the mystery of life to show itself. 
I love the way that Albert Einstein, if you, if you ever read anything from Albert Einstein about his relationship with God and his idea of spirituality, he says, I see God in the idea of the mysterious. What is the mysterious? This is the guy that knew probably one of the most uh, knowledgeable people about the physics of the world. And he's talking about the mystery? Or you look at, uh, what's his name? Stephen Hawking. At the end of his book, A, a Brief History of Time, he says so eloquently, and this is a guy who everyone thinks he's an atheist, but maybe he's an atheist to the God that is very narrowly defined. He says, you know, we, I made all these equations and I, I discovered all these different things and I'm trying to discover a theory of everything, right? And he has all these, these scientific concepts. He says, even if I could do that, even if I could figure out these deep scientific truths, he says that would not answer the fundamental questions for me. What is it that breathes the fire into the equations? What is it that, you know, wh why should there be something rather than nothing? That is a question that can never be answered by science. Why should there be reality rather than no reality for us to know of? So, so I think that's one of the great mysteries of life. And don't go around trying to say, I have an answer and this is it and let me just close the book. Because the, one of the most beautiful things about life is living in awe of that mystery. The ability to embrace that mystery and say, wow, what is it about the human condition that makes everything so mysterious? And, and you could open yourself up to the wonders of the world and be in awe of creation. I love this quote from, from Henry David Thoreau. Beware of any activity that requires the purchase of new clothes. What does that mean? Anybody think they know what that means? It's a very difficult one. It means that if you're, if this activity that you're going to do requires you to purchase new clothes, it's like, ah, oh, this is a highfalutin hashub thing. I'm going to do something really important. I'm going to be a surgeon. I'm sorry to hit on you, Dr. Nasser, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have this special uh, outerwear. I'm going to go be a firefighter. Well, that's implying that your your practice and your greatness is very much linked to that task and that task alone. What happens when you take off the clothes? What happens when you get home? It's no longer there. You no longer feel that importance and that and that beauty and that awe of life. So beware of that activity because that might try to convince you that you could only find God and, and beauty in that. And that's not the case. And you could really, you're supposed to be able to find spirituality anywhere. Yes, Aaron? So my, just my thought on that, do you think that that could mean also that someone's going to be someone they're not supposed to be? Like, ah, I never thought of it that way. I think that's great. No, I think for sure. I think if you're doing something and you're doing something that makes you feel all hashuv, it's implying to you, oh, you're, you're, you're trying, you know who you are. You know you're an imposter, right? You're not this hashuv doctor guy that knows everything. You're just Michael Franco. Who the heck are you? But you that's put on, beautiful. it is beautiful. So that's but the that's, thing. That's, that's it. You're quoting all these people, Sting, the singer. Yeah. He says, be yourself no matter what they say. I love that. That's exactly it. Don't try to hide behind the uniform and identify with the importance of the uniform. It's okay to be yourself. It's okay to let the world know and let yourself know, I'm just myself. I happen to be working as a doctor. And that's there's a, there's a humility in that and there's a beauty in that because it allows you to say, you know what, my, my value is not tied to the things that I accomplish. My value is lies in me being at Salem Elohim unconditional positive regard for ourselves regardless of of how we produce right but when you present yourself michael the on the other side of the coin the person who's looking at you 
is that is the perception maybe the the new clothes sells a different sells what the person's buying into exactly so they might think all this stuff about you they might have this limited perspective about who you are the important thing is that you don't forget i'm just michael franco and even that's an illusion i'm just this light of god like anybody else we are each just a neshama from the divine who is putting on this persona I love you. I'm not exactly. You're a vessel, but eventually you're gonna disappear. And then what happens to you? Well, who knows? But the point is that your your fundamental essence is this this thing that we can't even put into words, and that's something that's so beautiful. Um, here's another thing. Simplicity is the way we think. We we open ourselves to everyday wonder. That you know, it's that we mentioned Eliyahu and Avi already. It's opening yourself, you know, Jordan Peterson has a great quote. He says, when you, when you see a, a, a cat on the street, make sure you pet that cat. What does he mean? He means that take a moment every day in the midst of all the craziness, in the midst of all the work that you have to do. I have my boards exam coming up. doesn't mean I don't have time to appreciate beauty and nature, to pet the cat on the street. Because there's, there's always going to be something else pulling you towards worrying about something. But that doesn't mean you don't have the opportunity to appreciate the beauty of the nature that's around you at all times. I think that's the beauty of Bikot HaShachar. I'll never forget, every morning in Ma'alei Dumim in Israel, when I studied there for a year, a couple years ago, I would wake up, and I, I, didn't, I didn't like the, the, the minyan in the school, so I would go to the shul down the block, and I would wake up and I would be walking beautiful in the mountains, in this red desert, and there's so much greenery and fruit trees growing everywhere. It's really, they made the desert bloom over there. The most beautiful nature you'll ever see in Ma'ale Adumim. And as I would be saying, Birkota Shahar, I would be walking to Shul, and I will be looking around me and just in awe and, and, and appreciation and a meditative mindset about what I'm surrounded by. And I say, Baruch Hashem, Ivrim, that you gave me the ability to see all this beauty. I'm standing on this beautiful mountain. Look where I am. So I think that's a lot of Judaism is to try to bring your attention to the small beauties of life. And this is the last uh, couple of things we're going to discuss before we end. Experiencing both the beauty and the sorrow of life more deeply. I don't want to trick you here. I don't want to make you think that we're just going to have uh, you know peaches and rainbows and, and uh, unicorns from here on out. If you get enlightened, that's not the case. You could get enlightenment and that just means you're opening your heart. You're opening your heart to the beauty of life, yes. But you're also opening your heart to the sorrows of life as well. You're always going to be feeling those things that are difficult and painful just as deeply. But that doesn't mean you should contract away from them. Don't close your heart off the second something bad happens. This is the idea we mentioned earlier about clinging and pushing away. Don't do that. Just be present for whatever's coming up. Because you're going to have to deal with it eventually. And everything in life is worth paying attention to. Everything in life is worth experiencing because it's all part of what it means to be human. The painful stuff and the beautiful stuff. Um, there's a beautiful, you know, the idea here, the popular myths of materialism, possessiveness, ambition, and youth. In today's society, we love to preach about the importance of materialism and we want to possess more things. We have this ambition to go and achieve more and achieve more and achieve more. And look, who, who thinks they know the meaning of this uh, quote over here? Achievement and success by David Campbell. What does he say? Climbing the ladder only to discover it was up against the wrong wall. What does that mean? Exactly. You climb this ladder for years and years. So I could be going through medical school, going to do whatever I'm going to do as a doctor. 
And then I reach the top of the wall and I look around and I say, this is not all it's cracked up to be. I worked my whole life to get here and it wasn't really where the, the work was supposed to be done. This was just a superficial thing. This was just the, the uh, externalities of life. It wasn't the internal work I was supposed to be doing. So I thought I was going to be happy when I got to the top of this ladder. It was up against the wrong wall. Maybe I should have put another ladder up against the, the wall of enlightenment, up against the wall of, of, uh, of real emotional feeling and depth. Um, but then does that mean you should descend the ladder that you climbed all the way up? So I don't think it means you need to descend it. I think it just means that you need to start another ladder and start another journey as well in, in, right. in concert with it. Exactly. The only exception, the only exception to that is the ladder of spiritual growth. Uh, I think that's the one where you really start to feel this is what life is about. This is the wall I should be climbing. The la- there's, there's many ladders in spiritual growth. You yes, for sure. Exactly. It's not uh, just a uh, uh, you know an ephemeral thing. There's many different rafts, like we said. And today it could be this raft I'm using. Tomorrow I'm, I'm going to want to surf across the river. The next day I'm going to want to canoe against uh, across. And then someday I'm going to say, I'm not going to try to force it. Let me stop rowing my boat across this river. Let me sail with the wind. Let me harness the, the power of the en- and the energy of the Tao, as they would say. So there's different ways of relating to spirituality on different times. As long as you don't get caught up with the externalities of materialism and possessiveness, because that will never bring you any, any semblance of inner peace. All right, and this is exactly the quote here from Yirmiyahu, and this will end. Let a wise man not be praised for his wisdom. What does that mean? I thought wisdom was good. It is good. But that's not the be-all, end-all to what life is about. And let the, the strong man not be praised for his strength and his mightiness. Let a rich man not be praised for his riches. The only thing that's worthy of praise is to know and understand me, says God. Ki ani Adonai, because I am God. And it's fundamentally about taking these spiritual ideas that you learned through meditation, through whatever it was, through practice, and bringing them through justice and righteousness into the world. Because that's what I care about. That's where you'll find me. You're not going to find me at the, at the end of the ladder of wisdom, nor of mightiness, nor of the, at the end of the ladder of, of riches. You're going to find me at the end of the ladder of a spiritual enlightened life. So, Hazaku Baruch, guys. That was great. I really appreciate you taking your time to, to listen to these past two classes. And I feel like I really grew tremendously just from discussing these ideas with you, fleshing them out. And uh, I want to op- I want to hear your perspective. I want to hear your questions. If you have any, any comments? Yeah. Um, just on the last thing, that's the only thing I really have a comment on is that um, once you you know you realize that there's a spiritual path, that's kind of just giving you a direction, but it doesn't necessarily like you don't settle there. Like it's always moving. Like you're always moving. You're always. Uh, having to journey on that 
you know, if it's a ladder or a mountain or whatever it is that you're journeying on, it's it's continuous. It's never it's never exactly. It takes different forms and different places in your life throughout all the different walks of life. I noticed last week I mentioned a certain pattern in myself. The pattern was one of perfectionism and being too harsh on myself. And I saw that in every walk of life that I would be in. But the second I noticed that and I started noticing that same spiritual problem with me and I started fixing it, my tennis game got better and my academic life got better and my relationship with God got better and my relationship with my family got better. And everything about me got better because I stopped being a perfectionist. So I think it's the same way with anything in spiritual life. It's going to manifest itself in all the different ways that you could notice. And th that, that's the thing is if you're an aware person, if you're a person who really wants to grow, who cares about growth, you're going to take a minute to introspect and to say, what is the question I'm afraid to ask? What is the thing that I, I really don't want to do, but I really, in my heart of heart, I know it's necessary. And it doesn't mean taking a rash action. Call somebody up on the phone that you love. It could be your therapist. It could be your sister. I see my sister here. It could be somebody that you really deeply love and care about who you know also feels that way about you and talk to them and open up the conversation and say, how could I grow? How could I keep working on myself and how could I make myself a person who loves myself even more? Because that's what it boils down to. Compassion for yourself and acceptance of every element of who you are. There's no such thing as a wrong feeling. Every feeling that you have, understand it, accept it, let it flow through you. And don't cling and don't push away. But, Mikey, I think that also that what you said before, the ladder or the path or whatever, I think that the key thing is that if, if you start the journey and you make your shalut, obviously there's going to be, you know, bumps in the road or whatever. But I don't think that, I think that the key is that when you start the journey, then you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna just go on your way. You're not. It's, it's but without starting the journey, you don't have a shot. Exactly. You gotta be in it to win it. You know. Don't like Babe Ruth would say. Don't let the fear of striking out prevent you from hitting a home run. You gotta get get on up to the plate, and you're gonna fail uh, seven times out of ten. You're gonna fail. If you're a really good hitter, you'll hit three out of ten. You know. And that's uh, you know that's that's just a, a message for life. Be willing and ready to accept failure and understand that it's through those failures and through that pain even that you're going to grow because it's only when you hit up against something like that that you start to notice, okay, what is the inner work I need to do? But my, where's, the, where's the connection? The guy's on his journey or the girl's on his hard journey. So where's the intervention? Where's that? Where's, where's Hashem jumping in? Beautiful. When you make a left turn. Yes, I think... There's no easy answer to that, but I think it comes from asking the question in that moment. How can I bring God into this moment? At that moment. At that moment. Whatever you like, like you mentioned a couple weeks ago, I'll never forget this. You said something that really blew my mind. You said, what do you do when you hit a fork in the road? Remember you said this, Erwin? You said, do you start doing mitzvot? You say, God, please, you give tzedakah, all that. I said, you know what? You could do that, but it's not to build up points in Shamayim. It's to get yourself involved in those great things and in growing internally because the more you get involved in that exactly exactly that's all what life is always it always feels like the bottom of the night with two outs but then when you get yourself involved on that in, in these good things maybe god is going to step in in the in the sense that you instead of just the fork in the road you realize there's 27 other paths before you that you didn't even realize were there before not maybe for 
For sure. And you're a person who's speaking from experience. I'm 25. You're a uh, you know, you're not that old, but you're. Uh... I'm 100 years older, but I can tell you, <laughs> times in my life, the bottom of the ninth to two outs, he was right there. I love it. I have no doubt. I really do believe that. But I think the key, the reason why he was right there, Erwin, is because you're the kind of guy who asks the question. You and Rabbi Nahum and you and whoever, and all your friends that you talk to. And whichever person you, you were receiving guidance from, they helped you, and, and you helped yourself. That's exactly it. You were able to open yourself to whatever the moment called for. And, you know, anyone who talks to you, the fact that you're able to guide people today for their careers and everything you did with the Angel Fund and everything you've done throughout the years, that, that's a testament to the, the wisdom you've gained from living life. It, it only comes from going through life. And, and Exactly. Erwin, it's true. I love you. <laughs> yeah, Michael, when you said something about the fork, it, uh, I was thinking about you know people who close off options by, by being narrow-minded, uh, which is, a, for example, when someone's depressed, you know, they say, uh, there's no way out, I have no hope, you know, there's, I, can't, I can't escape the situation, you know, they hate themselves, they hate this, they hate that, but really, you know, if you try to tell them to open their eyes, say, no, listen, you know, you're young, you got your health, you're smart, you know, you got this, you got that, you got a mother, you got a, you know, you start, and it, like you said with the options, you know, it's not always left or right, uh, or just straight, you know, if you stop and take a deep breath and reassess the situation, evaluate, yeah, you can get off the wrong ladder onto the right ladder, but maybe you'll just completely turn around to the other direction. Exactly. I love that. We, we do so many of these things to ourselves. So much of this, the, the pain and struggle we go through on a daily basis is self-inflicted. You realize that. You know, you, you're, you're suffering because you are buying into the story you're telling yourself at that moment. But when you reach that spiritual pinnacle, you reach enlightenment, you realize this whole story is a farce. Michael Franco doesn't exist. Michael Franco is a story that my parents told me. They said, you put these sounds together, and that's what you tell people who you are. Is that really who I am? No. I, I can't even put into words what I am. Nobody could put into words what they are. So the second you realize you are just this Salem Elohim, even that is a borrowed term. That's when you could kind of shunt yourself out of that miserable story of the trail of tears that you're going through and allow yourself to just take a deep breath and say, ah, Wow, this is a breath of fresh air. This is what it feels like to be drowning and then come up for air. Michael, you had something to say. Um, yes. Uh, my mind just went blank. Sorry. Okay, well, we could come back. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? One comment. Please. So when you say, when you talk about um, don't cling to those feelings, so what we can do instead is let it go through you. Yes. That's what the idea is. What, what we're really trying to... How to get through... Yes, um, exactly. A, a bad feeling or a negative thought could be just let it pass. Exactly. Because the more you try to push it away, the more it's going to wait to confront you. It's always going to be there crouching at the door, right? La peta hatatrovets. But at the end of the day, if you just confront it and you do it in a way that's not pushing away, just feel that feeling, let it wash over you, and let it pass by. Because nothing is permanent. If you don't do that, then it could build up. Exactly. And then it comes out in an explosion. <laughs> uh, there's a song by the Frey where they say the best way out. Tomorrow finds that the best way out is through. 
and I thought that was that was always a good line to make. But also, I'm thinking of, of the difference between Yaakov and Yitzhak's encounter with Hashem. Yeah. Where Yitzhak would go out in the morning and then find him actively, like, searching for him. But Yaakov, when he was running away, and, and uh, kind of hit him as, like, a shock, and he had and he, he realized in that moment that, you know, like, there's Hashem and in, 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 that it was with, it was with him. So it was, it's, it's sometimes kind of... Uh, takes you by surprise. Beautiful. I, I, I 100% agree. I think that we can encounter God in, in many different ways, and uh, it's not always going to be comfortable, but it's just a matter of us asking the question, what can I do now to make this better for myself by bringing God into the picture? Guys, I don't want to keep you too long, so really thank you so, so much. I, I, I really feel so open every time I speak with you guys. You guys inspire me just as much as I might, might say something that inspires you. And uh, I want I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for going on this journey with me. Thank you so much. I love you guys. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. I do you the best. <laughs> you are, you are. You I love you. Me wild. <laughs> the truth, you, your ability to swing and sway and from Maslow to Mama, yeah. to, it's like it's like I'm holding on. I feel like I'm on the cyclone and going to the island. I love you. I do.